following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Already mentioned this morning a couple times, in 1977, an American phenomenon was born. Written and directed by George Lucas, the movie Star Wars captured the attention of moviegoers of all ages. The film, which takes place a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, made its way into nearly every movie theater across the United States. Now, just for a moment of solidarity for our elders here, if you saw this movie, elders, I mean people who were around for a while, If you saw this movie in its original release, in the theater, let's just see a raise of a hand. Look at that, ladies and gentlemen. That is phenomenal. Congratulate yourselves. You, along with most of the United States, went out to see it. When inflation's taken into account, this movie is the second highest grossing movie of all time, coming in just behind, anybody know? Not Avengers. Not Titanic, not even Avatar. The 1939 Joan Thank You movie, Gone with the Wind. Now just as a note, all nine Star Wars movies are in the top 100 highest grossing movies of all time. That's not a bad franchise. The original Star Wars received seven Oscars And its soundtrack, written by John Williams, has been listed by the American Film Institute as the best movie score of all time. It is regarded by many in the film industry, this movie that is, as one of the most, uh, as, as one of the greatest and most important films in film history. It led to two sequels, The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi being the third, and later to a prequel trilogy, then to a sequel trilogy, two additional spin-off films, as well as various TV series. And now a land at Disneyland. We know this movie as episode four, A New Hope. But when it was released, it was only called Star Wars. Now, if you would humor me, humor me for just a moment, I want you to picture the opening scene in your mind. To jog your memory, we see a small spaceship being overtaken by a much larger star destroyer. It's clear that they plan to board this smaller ship. Soldiers with their guns drawn line both sides of the hallway waiting to be boarded by the enemy. The door is breached and stormtroopers open fire, killing the soldiers, taking command of their ship. Soon, a man in a black mask, black cape, and black boots enters it is clear that he has emphysema or some other breathing problem. (laughs) He lifts the soldier off the ground with one hand choking him, and in the most phenomenal voice we've ever heard, says, where are those transmissions you intercepted? Next, we see a woman kneeling down, putting a small disc into a little tiny droid, who subsequently in the next scene ejects off an escape pod and lands on a nearby planet. And you know the story from there. R2-D2 finds Luke Skywalker, who then finds Obi-Wan Kenobi, who then trains him to be a Jedi. 
He meets Han Solo and his trusty sidekick, Chewbacca. They rescue Princess Leia. And then, running out of time, they destroy the Death Star, saving the galaxy, sending Darth Vader, hurtling into space to regather his forces for the next movie. What I want you to notice is that in Star Wars, the writers drop us smack dab into the middle of an already existing story. Like I said, it's episode four. We're not given much context as to who is fighting, why they're fighting, or what they're fighting over. We don't get a lot of backstory or a ton of details. In fact, we never find out why Leia is a princess. Not even in all nine stories, do we? <laughs> Instead, the audience is left to gather clues throughout the movie and must then try to piece together this overall storyline. Now, this is not uncommon in literature or film, and sometimes it even happens in scripture. Such is the case with the postcard epistle we look at this morning, that little book called Philemon. Now, we're in the middle of a series looking at these little tiny letters in the New Testament. Two weeks ago, Nigel gave us 2 John. Last week, Pat taught us 3 John. Next week, John Plesnick will give us Jude. And today, we look at the book of Philemon. With very little background and with limited information, limited explanation, the writer is dropped into the middle of an already existing storyline. It's not difficult for us to discover the main players, right? The Apostle Paul, Philemon, a slave owner, and Onesimus, his slave. Remember those three names. We find that these three men are all believers and that they are all in relationship together. And we can quickly deduce that there is an issue in the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And Paul, the author, is writing to his close friend Philemon in an effort to help restore their broken relationship. Now, we all understand what it's like to live with broken relationships, don't we? It's part of life on this fallen planet. We've all experienced pain at the hands of a friend, maybe even a family member, or possibly an enemy. Not one of us is immune from being hurt. And maybe your response to that pain is like the man who said, I wish that all of my enemies had three cars parked in front of their house, an ambulance, a fire truck, and a police car. Or like John F. Kennedy who said, forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. Or Ulysses S. Grant who said, the art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is, get at him as soon as you can, and strike him as hard as you can. Sometimes we embrace that philosophy. Oh, we might not wage a direct war on those who have hurt us. But how often have you given that person the silent treatment? Stopped responding to their texts? Or even started talking about them behind their back? These cold wars go on every day. Maybe a close friend or an old boyfriend or girlfriend has hurt you so badly that right now the wound remains open in your heart. When you think of that person, your blood pressure rises, your teeth grind together, the hair on the back of your neck, neck stands up, and there is no love lost. It doesn't take much for us to reopen the wounds of the past, does it? 
Maybe you've been lied to, betrayed, even abandoned by those whom you love. You tell yourself, ah, I've got broad shoulders, I've got thick skin, it's just water off a duck's back. But deep down inside, the pain turns into anger, the anger turns into bitterness, the bitterness turns into hatred, and you choose not to forgive. C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. And so there we are with our problems and our broken relationships looking for some solution to help solve our issues. So I did the work for you. I went online looking for answers on the worldwide internet. Here's a few. Take a deep breath. Don't play the blame game. Focus on the positive. Don't stonewall the other person. Eat dessert every night. That last one was actually mine. <laughs> and then, sure, those, those tips can help, but ultimately, they fall short. Because while they address our outward behavior, they don't get down to our hearts. Behavior modification cannot solve the issues in your marriage. Behavior modification will not solve the issues with your family and your kids. They don't solve issues with your friends or coworkers. The only solution is found in Jesus Christ. He is the only real hope because only he can dig down deep enough to address the core issues which are found where? In our hearts. Only Jesus can change you from the inside out. One author said, when God reigns in our hearts, peace reigns in our relationships. And this is at the heart of this little book. When God reigns in our hearts, everything changes. Now, he doesn't wave a magic wand when you become a Christian, and all of a sudden the conflict is eliminated and the pain is taken away. No, 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 no. God changes your heart and he changes you one day at a time. And he transforms you from the inside out, showing you how to live in a way that pleases him. He helps you to love and forgive others in the same way that he loved and forgave you. If I'm going to give it to you all in a simple phrase, it's this. Grace changes everything. You see, Christianity is not a religion of morality. It's not about trying harder and doing better. Christianity is when the grace of God invades the heart of a sinner and changes everything. Giving us a new heart that seeks to honor the Savior in all things. When God takes up residence inside of you, everything changes. When you experience the grace of God in your life and his love that bought you back from certain destruction and you realize you were unworthy and undeserving, the only response is that your heart changes as you seek to live and to love and to worship him with your very life. This week and next week as we dig into this book, we're going to see how God intends for us to live in a broken world with broken relationships, and we'll see how his grace changes everything in our lives and in our worlds. So if you would, open your Bibles to that little tiny book of Philemon. 
Now, some of you right now are grateful you've got a digital copy because you don't know where it is. It's in the New Testament, right after Titus, right before Hebrews. And like myself, before this last couple weeks, most of your day have never heard a sermon on this book or done any in-depth study. We're going to change that this morning. 25 little verses of goodness. I want to begin by reading it together. Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your, in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I'll be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, I'd like to do something a little different this morning. We don't believe in fictional, um, like the writing of biblical fiction or, or any of those type of things, but I'd like to try to reconstruct this story, telling you a little bit about these three characters and back into the text. So we're going to get to the text on the back half of this message and into next week, but let me just give you a little background on these three men and how all this came together. Let's begin with our first character, Paul. 
He's the first one we're introduced to. He's the author, and in normal writing style of the day, he introduces himself, not at the end of the letter like we do, but at the beginning of the letter. Do you see it there in verse 1? Look down at your Bibles. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, if you're a Bible student of any kind, you might remember that the first time we meet Paul is in Jerusalem, and it's at the end of Acts chapter 7. You remember the story where Stephen, standing before the Sanhedrin, Israel's Supreme Court, his face is shining like an angel, and he's defending his faith in Christ. He calls the Pharisees, these men who he's giving his report to, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. He goes on to accuse them of betraying and murdering their own Messiah. Their response, livid with anger, is to rush him, drag him out of the city, and stone him. And in Acts 7.58, it says, They laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who, according to chapter 8, verse 1, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. This young man was, according to Philippians 3, an ambitious and religious zealot. His star was rising, and he was on his way to the top. He was born in the right family. He went to the right schools. He had his eyes set on greatness and had given himself to extinguishing the newfound religion of Christianity. And so Acts 8 tells us he went house to house, ravaging the church and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. With no remorse, he would separate families, leaving wives without their husbands and children without their parents, hauling them off in chains. And I find it just a little bit ironic that when he writes the letter to Philemon, he's no longer sending others to prison, but is himself a prisoner. Verse 1 tells us he himself is now in jail for the very same crime that he previously accused others of. Something in his life has changed drastically. Acts 9 tells us that while he was still breathing threats against the church, he was blinded by a light from heaven. Falling to the ground, he came face to face with Jesus Christ, who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in Acts 9, 5, he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. As a result of that encounter, Paul surrendered his life, repented of his external works-based religion, and became a follower of Jesus Christ, and he never looked back. He gave his whole life, all of himself, in service to the Lord Jesus. Philippians 3 tells us, Paul speaking on his testimony says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. Now, Paul is our first example that grace changes everything, from a pride-filled, works-oriented religion to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. His life radically changed when Jesus infiltrated his heart. Now, if you look back at Philemon and look in verse 9, it tells us that he is now Paul the aged. Do you see that there? This tells us that a lot has happened. It's been some 25 years since the road to Damascus. He has led countless people to Christ, has been on three missionary journeys, established churches in all the main cities of Asia Minor, and has written most of the New Testament. To put this on a timeline for you, we are at the very end of the book of Acts. Do you remember sailing past Malta, sailing to Rome, Paul appealing to to Caesar? This is where we are. He is in prison in his first Roman imprisonment, Philemon 10 says he is in chains. 
more than likely attached to a guard 24 hours a day. Philemon 1 tells us Timothy's with him. Philemon 23 tells us Epaphras is in jail with him. Verse 24 tells us that while they're not in prison, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke are there in Rome with him. And so we have the Apostle Paul. Let's move to our second character, that of Philemon. Now Philemon was a resident of Colossae, a city near Laodicea and Ephesus in the Lycus Valley. That means very little to us today, but if you were to look at a map, there in southern Turkey. Philemon was a wealthy man. At least we can deduce that from the story. We know that he owned at least one slave, right? Verse 22 tells us that he had a guest house. And since, according to verse 2, the entire Colossian church met at his house, we assume that this was a man of means. Some suppose him to be some type of businessman we don't know. We also don't know how Paul and Philemon met. Not to get too deep here, but if you look at Colossians 1, it tells us that Paul had never been to, to Colossae. It was Epaphras who started this little church. Most surmise that sometime during Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus, Philemon took a trip there, maybe for business, we don't know, perhaps heard the gospel from Paul and walked away converted. We don't know the details of this, but we do know, according to Philemon 19, that he was converted through Paul's ministry. Paul says there, look down at your Bibles, you owe me your very self as well. We also know that his life was radically transformed. He is our second illustration that grace changes everything. To get an idea of how he changed, look at the way Paul addresses him. In verse 1, Paul calls him a beloved brother. He also calls him a fellow worker. Look down at verse 17. He calls him his partner. I think this is really cool. Philemon is in the fight. He is a worker alongside of Paul. He's not just an attender, not just a passerby. He is engaged and energized in the work of ministry. And we could say this in his life, grace changes everything. And it wasn't just that his life changed. Look back at verse 2. Most commentators believe that Apphia, this dear sister in the Lord, is Philemon's wife. And that Archippus, the fellow soldier mentioned in verse 2, is their son. This whole family then is running for Jesus. Their house is the focal point of Christianity in Colossae. We learned last week about hospitality, bringing strangers into your home with the purposes of, of informing them of God's, God's truth and loving them. Pat did a great job, and this family certainly is practicing that, extending themselves in multiple ways for the sake of Christ. We could say this little family is all in. And that brings us to our third and final character, Onesimus. Verse 16 tells us that he is a slave. A slave owned by Philemon. And we'll talk more about Christianity and slavery next week. Bookmark that. But for today, slavery was a normal part of life in the ancient world. There are estimates that up to a third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. Slaves were not considered persons under the law, but were the property of their owners. They could be sold, exchanged, given away, or even used to pay off debts. Many slaves were captured as a result of war, and others sold themselves into slavery to pay off debt. Some slaves would go into slavery willingly for stability for their families, three meals a day, a roof over their heads, etc. 
There, there was a spectrum for slaves. Some were sent to the salt mines, literally, and forced into hard labor, while others would become doctors, musicians, teachers, artists, even accountants, which truthfully seems like slave labor to me anyway, but um, the, the slaves were often a trusted part of the family. Some ran businesses, some raised children. It was not uncommon for slaves to be given their freedom or even part of the estate at the death of their master. Now, we don't know what type of slave Onesimus was, only that he belonged to Philemon. My guess is that he was close to Philemon, and that whatever his responsibilities were, these two were in regular contact. In any case, it is believed, and we're not told this, but, but commentators across the ages agree that Onesimus fled his home, escaped his master, and ran away. Now, for runaway slaves who were caught, the penalty was severe. It included anything from flogging to having their legs broken to an F for the, the Latin word fugitanus um, branded on their foreheads. Some were crucified while others were thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. Some were forced to wear an iron collar engraved with the name and address of the owner and the statement, catch me for I have fled my master. But all of this doesn't seem to bother Onesimus much who with renegade boldness gathers what little belongings he had, maybe even stole money to fund his escape and disappeared into the night. He then made the thousand-mile journey to Rome, the biggest city in the ancient world where there was an estimated 500,000 runaway slaves. You see, slaves um, were not from a single ethical group, nor did they wear any distinguishing mark, and so Onesimus could easily disappear into the mass of humanity and live in complete anonymity. I can't help but think of the prodigal in Luke 15, who with a disdain for his father and a pocket full of money, ran to a far-off country and squandered everything. And maybe this describes Onesimus as well. Having made his way all the way to Rome, he finds himself in the most populous city in the world. And somehow... In the providence of God, this runaway slave runs straight into the apostle Paul. How do you like that? Of all the gin joints in all the world. Proverbs 16.9 says, the, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. We don't know the circumstances of their meeting, but we do know the outcome. Onesimus comes to the end of himself repents from his sin and cries out to God to save him. And there in a Roman cell, grace changes everything. This isn't just a one-time encounter where he goes to a crusade, hears a message, raises a hand and goes on with his life, fading into the background. He becomes a fixture in Paul's life. In fact, these two grow incredibly close together. So close that Paul calls him his own child. Look down in verse 10 there. It says, the one whom I begot in my imprisonment. He loves Onesimus like a father loves his son. And Onesimus serves him like a son serving his father. And while verse 11 tells us that he was useless to Philemon, he is the exact opposite to Paul. And so they do ministry together, and he serves his father in the faith, and the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and Paul is using him for more and more, and their hearts are being knit closer and closer together, and yet in the back of Paul's mind, there's a nagging on his heart that Onesimus cannot stay with him. He knows that he needs to send him back to Philemon. 
And so with the greatest of care and in the most delicate and sensitive way, he writes a letter to his dear friend Philemon telling him he's sending Onesimus home. He allows himself only 335 words. Couched in love, this is his most personal letter and is the most intimate portrait that we have of Paul's heart. One commentator said, the whole letter is of pure gold. Another said, as an expression of warm personal affection, it stands unrivaled. And rightfully so. The level of tact and the care in the writing of this letter is amazing. Now Paul foresees the difficulty and challenges that is coming to each of these three men. This is going to be really hard for each of them for different reasons. Think of Paul. He's in jail, he's old, and he's losing a trusted servant. He's losing a son. Even more, look down at verse 12. This tells you about Paul's heart. He says, I've sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. It's like saying, I'm going to cut off my right hand. I'm sending part of myself to you. There's such a bond here. This is a sacrifice. This is going to be difficult for him. What about the difficulty for Onesimus? Having finished writing the letter, Paul seals it, calls Onesimus to his side, and explains to him the task at have ahead. Having wronged his master as a deserter and a thief, he is to return home, seek forgiveness, and accept the consequences of his actions. That's no easy task for a young believer, is it? Well, I'm sure he would have rather preferred to stay with Paul and serve him. He knew it was his duty and even obligation to go back and to make it right. And so understanding what is at stake, Paul hands the letter to him and to Tychicus, we find out from Colossians 4, and sends him on his way home. What about the difficulty for Philemon? His challenge is perhaps the most difficult. Having been cheated, embarrassed, even hurt by Onesimus, he is to forgive the wrong done to him and to welcome Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. He is to let go of the past and embrace him no longer as a slave, verse 16 says, but as a brother. The letter sees its climax in verse 17. Look there. You can underline this one. This is the heart of the letter. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Does this not go against human nature? Human nature says, you hurt me, I hurt you back. This goes against the social, economic standing and and culture of the day, which says, I am master, you are slave. What would the watching world say if he accepts him back with no consequences? And so when we put all this together, the sacrifice of Paul, the giving up of freedom of Onesimus, the humble forgiveness of Philemon, we're left with one conclusion. Listen carefully. Grace changes everything. When Jesus is in you, your life changes. And to the watching world, you might look the same, but everything is different. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christian, Christ lives in you. He changes us from the inside out. 
Our life is lived for the one who loves us, this verse says, and gave himself up for us. It is not obligation or duty. Grace changes the heart so that we respond out of love and affection and gratitude. And sometimes those changes are imperceptible. But step by step and day by day, the way we think changes, the way we talk changes, and the way we act changes because grace changes everything. Now, that could be the longest introduction of my life. In the time that remains for us this morning, I'd like to show you in this little book how grace changed everything for these three men and how it can change everything in your life and in your relationships. I don't know what your struggle is this morning. I don't know where this message finds you, but I do know that the grace of God changes lives. And let's find out what that looks like. We're going to see today and next Sunday seven ways that grace changes everything. This morning, we'll just look at the first one, and we'll hold the rest for next week. How does grace change everything? First, number one of your outlines, grace transforms your life. Grace transforms your life. Let's start in verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. I, I just, this is an aside, but I find it interesting that Paul is always praying. He's always praying. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And I'm convicted right away. I hate to say that if I was sitting next to him, chained with one hand to him, I would not be giving thanks. I would be complaining. You know how I know that? Because I'm not chained next to him. I live in freedom and I complain all the time. Maybe it's the same for you. What a dastardly sin that questions the sovereignty of God and his perfect plan for my life. I need to repent of it often and think more of the goodness of God and thank him for what he's done. But here's Paul. His heart is set toward heaven and his eyes are on others. And notice how he's praying. Not for his own release, but look what it says there. I'm making mention of you in my prayers. He consistently prays for others, and his prayers are positive in nature. He doesn't first think of their negatives or how they've fallen short or ways they've offended him or other uh, icky things about their personality. He begins with thanksgiving. A number of years ago, Tracy and I were driving home one evening. We got into a conversation about a particular couple in our church and I'm ashamed to say I initiated a very unkind, grumbling, complaining, and even spiteful conversation about them. Did you see how they did this? Can you believe they said that? Feeding off each other's negativity, we cut them down in our own self-righteousness, all while our kids sat in the back seat listening. Convicted, I, I asked Tracy, can you just say something positive about them? She spoke very quickly about their faithful service to the Lord. I went on to speak of their love for others, and back and forth it went. 
and the venom was gone, replaced with thankfulness and rejoicing, and it ended with genuine and sincere esteem for that couple. Paul's prayer is a reminder to thank the Lord for those he has placed in our life, to see the best in them, and to love them in that way, and to thank the Lord for bringing the community of believers around us. Now, why is he thankful? Look at verse 5. Why is Paul thankful? It's, it's because I hear of your love, and I hear of your faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Locked away in that Roman prison, his only window to the outside world is through the word of those who came to visit. And what he hears about Philemon is a huge encouragement. Even in his absence, this partner in ministry is standing strong. There is evidence of growth in his life, and it's manifest in two areas. Look back at verse 5. You can circle these. It is his love, and it is his faith. The first is vertical, faith toward the Lord Jesus. The second is horizontal, love for all the saints. These are marks of the truly converted, are they not? In 1 John 3.23, it says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he commanded us. Love and faith. Love and faith. The character qualities of a transformed life are love and faith. Faith is complete trust in something or someone. And Philemon's complete trust was in Jesus Christ. No longer relying on self for his own good works, he put his faith wholly in the finished work of Christ for the forgiveness of sin, for the salvation of his eternal soul. Charles Spurgeon used this old illustration and said faith can be described as a child stuck on the second floor of a house that is on fire. The father stands below and says to his son, jump into my arms. It is one thing to know the father is there. It is another to jump into his arms. The proof of faith is not just believing that the father will catch you, but of jumping out the window and falling into his arms. And so it is with Philemon. He has taken the plunge, no longer dependent on the things of this world, his money, his possessions, his comfort, his social standing, not even his own good works. He has put his trust wholly in another. What about that second characteristic, love? The word used here for love is the familiar word agape, the highest form of love. It's both selfless and sacrificial in nature. Note in verse 5, look there, if the love is for who? It is for all the saints, all the holy ones, all of the household of faith, all of God's people. The love of Philemon has been clearly expressed in this church in Colossae. Each week, he opened both his heart and his home, demonstrating true hospitality, and he loved all who came into his doors. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own lives, because you had become dear to us. And certainly that was the case in the heart of Philemon. Now look back at verse 5 for a minute. There's a little word there that I have a problem with. Look, look at your Bibles. Don't look at me. Look down. It's that word, all. Love for all the saints. Does that not give you pause for just a second? I, do you love all the saints? Showing no partiality? 
second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Like I said, love and faith are markers of the truly redeemed. When anyone looks at you, Philemon, it is obvious that your life has been transformed. There's something different about you, and it's demonstrated by your trust in God in all circumstances, and it's demonstrated by your love for everyone you come in contact with. Changing you from the inside out. Paul continues in verse 7, For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Paul's heart is full sitting there on the ground, chained to a soldier. His heart is lifted high because Philemon's selfless love uh, has brought a smile to his face and comfort to his soul. Even more so because verse 7 ends saying, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Now that word refresh means to give someone rest by providing an intermission from labor. And it is true that you and I sometimes need refreshing, don't we? We need an intermission from our work, from our ministry, even from our lives. Sometimes, as Bob Wiley says, we need a vacation from our problems. What about Bob? Never mind. Okay. And when you think of what this means in the real world, what it means to be refreshed or to refresh the saints, when you think of what this actually is in the context of this church, it happens all the time. It's those who come alongside you when you're suffering, who offer an encouraging word. It's those who weep with you when you've lost a loved one. It's those who grab you and embrace and will not let go and let the tears flow as they seek to comfort you in the Lord. It is those who pray with you consistently. It's those who help to carry the heavy burdens of life. It might be as simple as an encouraging word on the foyer, Robert, or on the patio, Chris, whichever one it might be. It, it is, um, sometimes it's a late night counseling session. Sometimes it's a, as simple as a meal being delivered to your home, or babysitting, or a visit to the hospital, or a ride to the doctor, or a hug and a smile with an uplifting verse from scripture. There's a thousand ways we are refreshed, and there's a thousand ways that we refresh others. And we all need it from time to time, don't we? Now, my family just returned from vacation at Lake Powell. We spent a little over a week on a houseboat enjoying time together in one of the most beautiful places in the world. But make no mistake, Lake Powell is a desolate place. There is not one tree at Lake Powell, not one. There's more shoreline than the west coast of the United States. This thing goes on for hundreds of miles. There is no vegetation. There are no animals. There's really no life at all at this place. Uh, in fact, they used to film movies of outer space because it looks like you're on Mars there with the red rock cliffs and the sandstone canyons surrounded by endless water. Now, I've traveled up the lake many times in a boat. Sometimes it's in the early morning. Refreshed from a good night of sleep, I've got a tank full of gas, a smile on my face, worship music, music blaring on the stereo. There's not a ripple as the boat cuts cleanly through the water. The cool breeze and the rising sun makes for a perfect morning. So awesome. I've also gone up the lake in the middle of the afternoon multiple times. 
It's now 105 degrees. The desert wind is blowing, creating tumultuous waves and white caps everywhere. I'm no longer effortlessly cutting through the waves, but now instead the boat is moving slowly as it smacks up and down the peak and valley of every single wave. I'm doing all I can just to control the boat. I'm tired, I'm running low on gas, and I'm no longer playing worship music. <laughs> Around each turn of the lake, I'm looking for one and only one thing, dangling rope marina. Dangling Rope Marina, aptly named, this little haven is 40 miles from the next closest marina and is tucked away in this little protected canyon and is accessible only by boat. There, the weary traveler can get off the water and out of the sun and take a break. They can refuel their gas tank. They can get food, water, and shade. But my favorite part of Dangling Rope is that they have root beer floats. And there's nothing better than being in the middle of the desert and eating ice cream. Our Christian lives can be like this sometimes. We find ourselves in difficult circumstances, beaten down by trials, running low on gas. We get weary. You ever felt that? But not far off, maybe just around the next bend, is an outpost. It is the church of Jesus Christ. It's a place we can go. It's given to us by our Lord, a gathering place where we can rest, recharge, and regroup. But it's not about the location, and it's not about the building. There are Philemon's there. The church is about the people. There are individuals who will encourage us, who will lift us up, and who will refill our tanks. Look back at verse 7. It says, The hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. And sometimes you and I need a Philemon in our life. And sometimes we need to be a Philemon to others. There are days when we need to be encouraged. And there are days where we need to be that voice of encouragement to others. On both sides of the equation, can I remind you that you and I are designed to be in context with others, in relationship, in broken relationship, when things hurt and are not perfect, God has built this place and this church and these people to put us together and by his grace to change us forever. And relationships are messy and they don't go perfectly and feelings get hurt and egos get bruised. But those who have been transformed by his grace recognize that this is part of God's plan to grow us and purify us and ultimately to make us more like Christ. Can you think of a Philemon in your life? I've got lots of them. Someone God has used to encourage you, to refresh you, to bolster you in the faith. Can I tell you right now, encourage you, write their names down, a few of them. Will you, like Paul, give thanks to the Lord for them? On the other side of the equation, have you considered how, like Philemon, you can bless others? A, a thousand ways. It could be as simple as a handwritten note, a cup of coffee, a visit to their house. Sometimes we give encouragement. Sometimes we receive encouragement. But all along, the hearts of the saints are being refreshed through the body of Christ. Now let me look, excuse me, look back at verse 6, and I want to wrap all this up for you. 
right in the middle of this massive encouragement, Paul stops to pray for Philemon. And he tells us exactly what he's praying for. And watch this, because this matters. It is directly related to the purpose of his letter. And this should make sense to us. Think about your own prayer life. When you pray for someone, you most often pray for a very specific issue in their life. Do you not? You go to prayer and you say, Lord, I pray for so-and-so. They're trying to decide where to go to school. Um, Would you give them wisdom and lead them and guide them in that? Lord, I pray for my friend who just lost a loved one. Will you comfort them and give them peace and increase their trust in you during this difficult time? Does that make sense? We, we pray with the end in mind of what we see in their life and what the need is. And that, that's what Paul's doing here. It's no different. His prayer is ultimately to help Philemon accept Onesimus back. Let me read it and then briefly explain it. Verse 6, look at your Bibles. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Now, this is a bit complicated, and some commentators say one of the most complex verses in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you my best paraphrase and show you why it matters. Paul is saying, God, Father, I want to see Philemon embrace the good deeds that lead to increased fellowship for the sake of Christ. I want to see Philemon embrace the good works you have for him so that there would be a growing in fellowship all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, what are those good deeds in Philemon's life that will lead to increased fellowship for the sake of Christ? Now, the prayer's nebulous. It doesn't tell us. But if you look down at verse 17, it does. The heart of this book. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. That's pretty specific, isn't it? It's pretty specific. The good work that is coming that will increase the knowledge, that will bring more fellowship, that will increase the name of Christ is that Philemon would accept his slave as a brother. He's praying that Philemon will walk in forgiveness so that all who look at his life will know that grace has transformed him from the inside out. Now just as a side note, there is one recipient of this letter that I have not mentioned yet. Look back at the end of verse 2. He writes to the church in your house. I told you this is a private letter, but it's addressed to everybody. Hey, Philemon, your wife, your son, and everybody. That is to say, the way that Philemon will handle this situation will be seen by the entire body. And so Paul's praying that he would respond rightly. He wants not only the church, but also the watching world to see Philemon extend forgiveness to this wayward slave. This act on its own will demonstrate that his heart and his life have been changed by the grace of God and the light of Christ will shine even brighter to all who look. Why do you do this? It is countercultural to everything. It's because Christ has changed him and he lives for a different master now. And so I need to stop right there. Grace transforms your life. Next week we'll look at some more character qualities written here. And as we close, and I'm out of time, I want you to think about the grace of God in your life. Think about how God saved you. We just heard Noah's testimony this morning about being a brat. I would say prideful in my own life, lust-filled, angry, and any other self-focused sin all in my life. 
but think about the moment that God called you to himself by his amazing grace. I was 13 years old, and the preacher was preaching, and I was compelled, the irresistible grace of God, to stand up and move forward and give my life to Christ. I saw my sin in light of the holiness of God for the first time, and I saw the beauty of the Savior and his grace and his love extended towards me, and I could not but respond. And in that moment, God changed everything in my life for then and forever, and many have that same story. We are Christians not because of what we do, but because of what he did. And we live in light of that grace and are forever thankful and live in response to what God has done. And watch this, it changes our life and it changes our relationship with other people. For those of you who have never experienced the grace of God, who are on the, on the, on the treadmill, on, on the little wheel trying to figure out if I just do more and do better and, and have the right Christian lingo and come to church, then God will accept me. That's not it at all. I want to encourage you to come to Christ and find grace, his unmerited favor, where you can get off of that treadmill and you can find rest for your souls. Have you put him off long enough? Are you not tired of running? Are you not weary of the sin and the guilt that you feel every day? Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Won't you come to the Savior this morning and find rest for your soul? Friends, when Christ comes, everything changes. Aren't you glad? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that when we were lost and dead in our sin, you didn't leave us there. You didn't leave us alone. But you extended your love and your unmerited favor towards us in Christ. And you took your enemies and you made us your friends. And you call us sons and daughters of the Most High God. We've been adopted into your family. We thank you that you've forgiven us and that you've changed us. And Lord, in our individual lives, would you give us just the knowledge this week of grace in our hearts that we might live not out of obligation but out of response for all that you've done for us. We love you and we sing now about your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.